Okay, I'm on, we're going. Hey Chris, I didn't know if you'd be here. I was like, uh, I don't know if that makes me more nervous or, or less. If I can get you to laugh then, you know, that would be really encouraging. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad Del mentioned that. I was gonna go for it and uh, if you know me at all, I'd probably just cry. Uh, so, um, but I, I do want to, to share that uh, just once again and just reinforce what Del said. Um, man, uh, when I was just 16, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Um, I heard the gospel, but uh, didn't really hear it um, until I went to, um, am I messing something up with the mic? Have I placed it incorrectly? Or Anyway, just let me know if I need to do something. Um, so I stopped that. Um, but I didn't really hear the gospel um, until, I mean, until it was you guys and your kids and uh, coming to me um, and ministering to me in high school um, that made such a difference. Um, and so I'm, I'm just super thankful. Um, thank you for uh, being a big part of why I got saved. Uh, I mean, it's because you guys are a mission-minded, soul-conscious, soul-winning fellowship that, you know, I exist, uh, that I'm, I'm here and I got saved. And so, uh, man, I'm just so thankful for that. Um, well, my name is Romeo. If we haven't met, I probably just said that, but uh, probably the most important thing I can share with you is, you know, that's my wife, Becca, like Dell introduced her. Uh, I'm glad she's here. Uh, she, uh, without her, I'm just like an incomplete human being. So, um, love you. And uh, this is, uh, this is Cora. <laughs> she, uh, she couldn't be here. Uh, I kind of wanted to bring her. Um, and, you know, I, I hesitated to put a picture in there. You know, all the other young guys do it. It's cheap. It's like, it's just easy points. It's easy brownie points. Um, but I was telling Becca about that literally this morning before I sent the slides in. And, uh, and she said, I said, you know, all the other guys do it. But I said, you know, uh, she said, but you have the cutest one. <laughs> so I was like, I have to do it then. Um, yeah, so uh, that's my daughter. Praise the Lord for her. Um, man, I'm just thankful. I could not have imagined the life that God has given me. I mean, the wife God has given me, the daughter God has given me, and the church that God has given me, and you guys, and that, that means everything to me. So um, let's, uh, let's pray. We'll be in Psalm 78. Um, I'll pray, and we'll get into it. Um, so Father, uh, God, I'm just so thankful for your word and uh, how it moves in and through us and how uh, man, you've used this group of people uh, to win souls and to bear fruit. And uh, I just pray that you would use me to be an encouragement um, to edify this group. Um, uh, like Del was praying, man, Lord, uh, just put me in aside and help me to uh, just surrender completely to the work of your spirit and that you would uh, communicate your word clearly. Um, yeah, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm insufficient for this. And uh, if this is going to be profitable time in your word, um, we need the anointing of your spirit. So. Um, God, be with us, be glorified in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so turn over to Psalm 78 if you aren't there yet. Um, so Psalm 78, uh, for just a little bit of background, if you look at the first verse, uh, you might have the superscript for the psalm. Uh, it says, Maskil of Asaph. Uh, Maskil, um, like you've been studying in your Psalm Sunday series, means instruction. And so this was a psalm written by Asaph. Um, you've met him before on Psalm Sundays. Uh, he was one of David's chief musicians, one of his uh, co-writers uh, on the body of work that became the psalms. He wrote plenty of psalms, and this is one of them. 
now, he wrote this psalm specifically. It's a historical instructional psalm in that it overviews the history of the nation of Israel. And why that's important is because it's 72 verses long, uh, and we have 35 minutes. Uh, so there's a high likelihood we will just get lost in the sauce. And if you don't really pay attention, uh, we'll just get lost. It's a really long history. Um, but he quotes that history. He, he draws from these examples in the nation of Israel's history as a way of warning us of the dangers of leaving God's law, of disobeying God's instruction. Um, and so you can break this psalm down into three basic sections. It won't be the outline we'll use this morning, but I think it's good to give you just a snapshot and a summary of the content of the psalm. And uh, I stole it from Warren Wiersbe. So it's pretty great. Um, so in verses 1 through 8, uh, Wiersbe titled that section, Protecting the Future. Um, and in the first eight verses of the psalm, Asaph uh, reminds the nation of Israel that it is their responsibility to pass on a righteous spiritual legacy to the next generation of the Israelites, uh, to pass on worship and obedience and to teach that to their children. And so he really talks about protecting the future. And then in verses 9 through 64, kind of the big, the big body of the psalm, uh, he turns backward to understanding the past. He uses several examples of Israel's past disobediences to warn them about those consequences of leaving God's law, of being unfaithful to God. And then at the very end of the psalm, uh, in the last seven verses, he talks about appreciating the present. Um, Asaph reflects on how God had recently uh, delivered them from the Philistines, uh, brought the ark back into Israel, restored his glory, set up David as their king. And so he just praises the Lord for his faithfulness. I mean, um, when you think about it, that's such a, a, a good outline because Asaph's purpose is to protect the future. He wants there to be a righteous legacy for God's people. Um, but in order to do that, we have to understand the mistakes of the past so we don't repeat uh, what Israel had fallen into previously, um, and, and he just brings it right back to the present and praises God for his king David and, uh, man, all the things that God had done. And, and so um, that's a really high-level outline of the 72 verses we're going to try to cover in the next 30 minutes. Uh, I plugged it into a website. If we, if we just read the whole psalm from front to end, it would take seven minutes. <laughs> that's like one-fifth of our time. Uh, so pray for me uh, in your heart, if you would, that we would just uh, get through this efficiently and not get lost in the weeds, but that it would still be profitable. Um, so let's dive in. So the first section um, is uh, a pattern or a picture of discipleship. These first eight verses are going to show us a really good picture of biblical discipleship, which is a big heartbeat of our church here at Midtown. So verse one, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So for context, we know there's a Moscow psalm. It's supposed to instruct and teach. And so Asaph begins by calling for the people's attention. He says, all right, lean in, give me your ear, listen up, uh, because what I'm going to give you, my law, or in this case, he's using that to mean my instruction, not in reference to the Old Testament law. He means, listen to my instruction. He says, I'm going to open my mouth in a parable. And we know from the teachings of Christ, a parable is an illustration. It's a way of bringing a spiritual truth to life by grounding it in an example. And uh, it's kind of a dark saying. You know, it's hard to parse out exactly 
what the parable is teaching if you're not inclining your ears and paying attention and really studying out the picture. And in doing so, according to verse 3, he places himself in the long tradition of the Jewish people of passing down this parable, this dark saying. He says, well, I'm just telling you something you already know because we've heard this and known this and our, our fathers told us this. The Jewish people had a long-standing tradition of rehearsing the history uh, of the exodus, of their wanderings in the wilderness, um, and it's deeply instructive, and it's instructive for us, too, as we'll see as we keep going. And so uh, what I want you to see, though, is that in talking about this investment of God's word, um, we see a great picture of biblical discipleship um, because that's really what God has used in every dispensation to uh, multiply worshipers to propagate his truth is the process of biblical discipleship. Um, now, if you haven't come to this church for very long, um, you might not have heard of the term discipleship before, or maybe you've heard it a million times, but it's, it's really the heartbeat. It is the ministry of the local church, not just a ministry. And so it's worth defining and gleaning some insights from this first section of the psalm. So biblical discipleship is the process of a more mature believer investing the truth of God's word into a younger believer. Uh, we know that we as Christians are called to make disciples, to train and teach God's word uh, from one generation to the next. And um, in this psalm, we get a really good picture of discipleship because that's exactly what Asaph is doing. He's taking the truth of God's word. He's going back to the Old Testament law, and he's putting it in front of the people with the purpose of securing a righteous legacy for the next generation. And that's what we want to do. Um, I don't want the soul-winning DNA and disciple-making and church-planning DNA of Midtown to just die here um, because you guys were faithful to that vision and made disciples and, and stuck with the mission. I exist. <laughs> like I, I don't exist if you guys aren't focused on propagating a righteous spiritual legacy of making disciples and winning souls. Um, and so it's really important that we, like Asaph, take seriously that mission of investing God's word in the next generation. In verse 4, um, let's look at the purpose of discipleship. In verse 4, um, we read this. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. And so here we get the purpose of the discipleship. The purpose of discipleship is to bring worship and glory to God. That's the reason we do it. That's why it exists. That's why God has called us to it. Um, you'll remember John 4, 23. That's what the Father is seeking, for such to worship him. True worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. That's all the Father has been looking for throughout all the ages and for all of eternity is to have worship. And so Asaph calls this generation to say with him, to respond, we won't hide the truth of God's word from our children. And how do we do that? Well, we show his praises. We sing the hymns. Um, we bring God's word to the next generation with a worshipful attitude. Um, you guys will remember, what's the first goal of discipleship? Established in the worship of God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you for leading us in that. That's awesome. Uh, man, that was a blessing to me. And that's, that's the heart of what God wants, like we were singing. That second song you were leading us in is, that's what God's looking for, is a heart of worship. And so we do discipleship because it cultivates and translates worship to the next generation. We got to keep moving. So next we see the pattern of discipleship in verses 5 and 6. The pattern of discipleship is uh, each generation teaching and instructing the next generation in the truth of God's word. Verses 5 and 6. 
Take a look with me. Verse 5 and 6 says, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers. All right, discipleship is a command. We have to do it. God's called us to do it. He commanded our fathers that they should make them, the truths of God's word, known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. And so since worship must be done in spirit and in truth, each generation has to pass on the doctrines and truths of God's word. That's what's at the heart of it. And so God's word has to be known. It's, it's your job. It's my job to rise up and declare God's word to the next generation. Um, I'd like to point something out to you about this pattern of discipleship. If you're paying really close attention, you can see four spiritual generations in verses 5 and 6. You've got the fathers, you've got their children, the generation to come after them, the children which should be born, and then their children. And that pattern of four generations is eerily similar to our anchor verse for discipleship in the New Testament, which is 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to his disciple Timothy, and the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, shall be able to teach others also. And so you see there four generations of discipleship. You've got Paul, the me, speaking to thou, Timothy, his disciple, talking about how he needs to invest God's word into faithful men, third generation, who will teach others also, fourth generation. And that's the pattern of biblical discipleship, is the fact that, uh, man, someone discipled Chris. Chris took me out to Benetti's in high school, showed me God's word, tried to straighten out the emotional wreck of 16 years of living lost will do to you. Uh, and uh, then I get to disciple people, and man, it's just awesome. So there it is. <laughs> I mean, there's four spiritual generations already. You can put core on the fourth one. You know, like it just, it goes like that, right? That's, that's four generations, and that's what a healthy church looks like. That's the pattern of discipleship, is you can see generation after generation glorifying God and transmitting his word. Uh, next up, let's talk about the product of discipleship, the product of discipleship. Discipleship produces four things, and we see them uh, in verses 7 and 8. It says that they might set their hope in God, they, speaking of the fourth generation, like four generations down, that that fourth generation might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Uh, So you see those four products of biblical discipleship uh, here in these verses. I mean, disciples get to set their hope in God. Uh, And so when I got saved, I was 16. And, you know, just like any teenager, I guess these days, uh, struggled a lot with what teenagers struggle with. Um, Just, I don't know, sad, you know, no sense of of greater purpose. My family unit kind of splintered and shattered when I was kind of in some of my formative years. And uh, man, so I was just kind of a train wreck. I didn't have God's word. Um, and so I was just lost and without peace and without direction and didn't have a clear idea of what the future looked like for me. But I got saved and I got discipled. And Alex Allen took me through 18 lessons and equipped me and showed me how to invest God's word in people. And uh, man, so I can set my hope in God. I know that I can give my life to something that matters for eternity. I know that my labor is not in vain. I get to the end of my life and because I got to share God's word with you and with my disciples and with everybody I know, you know, I have hope for the future. You know, disciples don't forget the work of God. 
because they learned it from the previous generation. They, they don't forget the things that God has done, and so they know he's going to do more. That's hope. Disciples keep his commandments. We learn to be obedient to God's word. Um, we don't stray away from it. We don't explain it away. And disciples don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, because it's possible this church doesn't stick with the stuff. Um, we know churches that were bigger and maybe better than ours that didn't. They didn't make it. And if we don't make disciples and keep that heartbeat going, you know, we'll be like that generation. We, we won't make it. And so that's the product of discipleship. And now as we move forward in the psalm, uh, that was the first eight verses. We've got to keep going. Let's talk about the first example um, that Asaph uses of the dangers of leaving God's law. The first example is the children of Ephraim in verses 9 through 11. It says the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle, right? They were like that old generation that, you know, wasn't steadfast with God. They retreated. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. And so what I want you to see in the children of Ephraim is that um, we see the exact opposite of the products of discipleship. When a generation like the children of Ephraim, sees their fathers being stubborn and rebellious and not obeying God's law, well, it just, they just repeat the mistakes of their fathers. Um, they go back to what they know. Instead of being filled with hope, they're filled with fear. Instead of remembering God's works, they forget them altogether. Instead of being obedience to God's word, they refuse to walk in his law. And instead of being steadfast in their relationship with God, they keep not his covenant. And so the children of Ephraim serve as our first warning that, man, if we don't make disciples, we're just dooming the next generation to a life without hope, a life without courage, a life without faith, a life without the truth of God's word to lead and guide them and do a work. And so, man, that's, that's a warning to us. If we don't make disciples, man, uh, that's the world that we see now. I mean, that just describes the lost. <laughs> that shouldn't describe... Korah and the generation that this church inherits 15, 20 years from now. Um, we cannot afford to uh, fall into the danger of leaving God's law and producing a generation without hope, disobedient, and unfaithful to God. And so from there, he moves to the real heart of the psalm, uh, which is Israel in the wilderness. Uh, in verses 12 through 16, I'm going to start moving really fast because this is a long section, so... Um, I'll take a drink of water in a second, uh, but uh, just stick with me. Verses 12 through 16. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers. You know, those works that the children of Ephraim forget, they're marvelous. In the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also, he led them with the cloud and all the night with the light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And so these are the wondrous things that God did in the previous generation that were forgotten, discarded, did nothing for the next generation, completely forgotten. And so we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, that Israel's exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament is a type of our salvation. Uh, just like the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt under the rule of Pharaoh, uh, we too were slaves to sin under the dominion of Satan, the god of this world. And just like the children of Israel were miraculously delivered from Egypt, spared from death by the blood of the Passover lamb, 
we have been miraculously delivered from our sin and spared from the righteous judgment of God by the blood of Christ, who is our Passover lamb. And just like the children of Israel were delivered victoriously from their enemies, leaving Egypt buried in the waters and separated unto God by passing through the Red Sea, we have been set free from the clutches of this world, the flesh and the devil, and separated to live holy lives in service to God. And just like God provided bread and water in the wilderness, God has provided us with the spiritual meat and drink of God's word and spirit to sustain us. And just like God guided Israel in their wanderings through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, well, God's given us his spirit and his word to guide us and to give us direction. But just like Israel, who sinned against God in spite of all that he did and fell in the wilderness, we too still are tempted to lust after evil things and will repeat their mistakes despite the wondrous salvation God has orchestrated in our lives through Jesus Christ, we fall away. These passages are written to warn us against this. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, and, and we'll take a look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, Moreover, brethren, that Paul speaking to the church, I would not that you should be ignorant. I mean, don't be ignorant about this. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat and drink, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. And that's a severe understatement. By many, he meant all but two. With many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul, why the history lesson? Well, here now. These things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. I mean, God miraculously saved them from Egypt, just like he saved us from our sin. And yet we find ourselves tempted and falling to lust. And that's the example uh, that we see in Psalm 78. That's exactly what Asaph calls our attention to is the fact that in verse 17, and they sinned yet more against him by provoking the most high in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? And so they fell into tempting God and provoking him in their prayers because they wanted meat for their lust. Now, it's not necessarily wrong that they wanted, you know, some chicken, right? I mean, it's not wrong to want to eat. Uh, I mean, we get pretty hungry. This church, we stay a little late, you know. You don't get out of main service till like 1230. You're probably not eating lunch till like 1, 1.30. You know, and I kind of just want some chicken. I kind of just want to go home and eat. Um, so what, what's this about lust, you say? You know, why can't I just be begging God on the drive home? Get me there. Uh, well, you see their heart. It came from a heart of unbelief. Can he do it? Discontentment. Why hasn't he done it? Doubt. Will he do it? Selfishness. Do it for me. And covetousness. They wanted something that wasn't for them. Lust as defined in the scriptures is the desire for anything that's outside of God's will and provision for our lives. I mean, it might not necessarily be a bad thing. I mean, I need money. I got to buy 
gotta buy diapers. <laughs> it's, all, it's expensive having a kid. <laughs> Amazon owns me. <laughs> but, you know, if you just fall lusting after money, well, you could pierce you through yourself through with many sorrows. It's not wrong to want, you know, all these things. But if it's outside of God's will and provision, it produces sin and it's wrong for us. Think about the command we're given in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. John begs us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. I mean, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father, it's not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, listen, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. When we despise the goodness and the blessings of the things that the Father has given us and will give us, man, that that just sets us up to fall straight into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life and the things of this world. I mean, because otherwise, our, our heart turns to other things for satisfaction or fulfillment. We need money. We need possessions. We, we, we need a nice house and lake house for the summer. You know, take my boat out there, go fishing. I mean, we, we need all these nice things. And, you know, instead of coming to church on Sundays, well, I just take a part-time job. I'll just work off my debt in 15 years. And maybe I'll, I'll see that, own some property, pass it on to my kids, create some generational wealth. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the minute it starts running up against God's will and provision for your life, man, we're out of bounds. Um, This leads us to our first biblical warning about lust. We are most vulnerable to lust when we are ungrateful and discontent with God's blessings. We're in the worst place we could be. God's been so good to us. and uh, When we come to a place where we... We're not thankful for it anymore. We're primed to fall away, to despise those things and to look out for something else. And that's exactly what happened in the wilderness. God's manna, the water, the fire, the cloud, it wasn't enough for them. And it put them in a a very bad spot. We got to keep going. Um, Let's keep going. Uh, So next up in the next section, I want us to look at uh, the next Biblical warning about lust in verses 21 through 28. we got to start flying. Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and had rained down manna upon them to eat and had given them of the corn of heaven. I mean, heaven's corn, heaven's cornbread. That's awesome. (laughs) Man did eat angel's food. And that's what they had on the side up there. Man did eat angels' food, for he sent them meat to the full. But no, they wanted meat for their lust. He caused an east wind to blow in the heaven, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He rained flesh also upon them as dust, and feathered fowls like the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of the camp and about their habitations. And then we get this warning. And we'll show you the verse in a second, but let me just give it to you first. When God gives us the lustful desires of our hearts... It is a judgment, not a blessing. Look at verse 29 for me. I'll show you something terrifying. So they did eat and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. Dangerous. You don't actually want what you want for you. (laughs) You don't, because what you want for you is not good. Romans chapter 1 is a great illustration of this. Uh, I'll just summarize it for you. 
Uh, God's summarizing his judgment of the pagan Gentile nations in Paul's day. And uh, he talks about how he revealed himself to them in creation. And uh, man, he just, he just showed himself completely to them, his power and his Godhead. And they rejected him. And so God gave them over to their lust to dishonor themselves. And because they continue to reject him, man, he gave them over to all kinds of sexual impropriety. And man, if that doesn't describe our society today. I mean, God has given us over. Generations of people in this country have decided to leave God behind in the modern era. And God gave us over to vile affections. And if this keeps going, I mean, God's just going give to us, give us over to a reprobate mind. We won't even know how to think anymore. And this is a judgment and not a blessing because the end of lust is sin, death, vanity, and trouble. It says in verse 30, They weren't estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. James 1.15 warned us about this. When lust conceives and has a lust baby with your flesh, well, it brings forth a sin baby. And the sin baby, when it's finished, it just brings forth death. So maybe you're here this morning and you never put your faith and trust in Christ in the gospel. Can I just warn you? If you keep going after what makes you happy, it'll just end up in nothing but vanity, trouble, sin, and death. I mean, praise God. He took that death and Christ suffered it in our place. And man, if you'll just put your faith in him, he'll free you from that. But after you get saved, if you choose to go back to those lusts and that sin, well, you're just signing yourself up for a life of vanity and trouble, just like the lost world around you. And the solution to that problem is true repentance. True repentance is a change of heart. It's choosing to hate what God hates. And unfortunately, that's not what the nation of Israel chose in the wilderness. I mean, they chose to repent, but it was a fake one. Verse 34 says, when he slew them, then they sought him. I mean, when, when it got tough, when the consequences of their sin found them out, then they turned around and they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. Sounds great. But look at verse 36. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not right with them, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. True repentance looks like hating what God hates. True repentance doesn't look like you got caught, and now people are mad at you, and life kind of sucks, so God, <laughs> I need you to fix this. We, true repentance doesn't come from wanting to escape the consequences. It comes from hating what you did. I used to work with kids all the time, and I'd always try to convince them. They do something wrong. I'd say, turn to your friend, say sorry, and they go, sorry. The other person says, oh, I forgive you. 30 minutes later, we're in the exact same spot. Because they didn't truly repent, they just kind of put on a little show for me. I guess I'm God in the illustration. <laughs> and uh, they were just doing it to escape the consequences, not get put in time out or have me call their parents. But uh, true repentance looks like actually hating sin and wanting to get away from it. Look at 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 7. This is the fruit of true repentance. Godly sorrow works repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world, it just works death. You just go right back to your sin and death. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. And this is what true repentance looks like. What carefulness it wrought in you, 
Yay, what clearing of yourselves. Yay, what indignation. I mean, you just, you just hate it. You can't stand the things that you used to do, the person you used to be, the people you hurt. It disgusts you. Yea, what fear. God forbid I should ever go back to my sin. Yea, what vehement desire. God, please free me from this. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things you've approved yourself to be clear in this matter. Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, when you truly repent, you don't want to go back. God forbid you should go back. And that's the solution to leaving God's law and falling into our lust is returning to God's law and repenting. We've got to fly here, so uh, let me just really quickly in the final verses of this psalm, let me just give you a path to returning to God's law. If you're, if you're here and maybe you're captive to lust or maybe you've fallen and you ain't told anybody yet, uh, man, uh, here are the steps to go back. Here's how we return to God's law. Step one is we remember that God is good and merciful. Remember that God is good and merciful. Verse 38 says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. I mean, we're just, we're just so fleeting and temporal and carnal. James 4.14, it's a very famous verse. It says, whereas you know not what shall be in the morrow, what's your life? What is, what is the human life? It's just a vapor. It appears for a little time and then vanishes away. In Psalm 103, 13 through 18, yeah, there it is. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. I mean, it looks good for a time, but then the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And the place thereof knows it no more, but the mercy of the Lord, not like our fleeting lusts and temptations, the mercy of the Lord's from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And if you'll just fear the Lord and repent, his righteousness is unto children's children. He'll turn your family around to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. My, uh, my wife's really gracious with me. Uh, I mean, you, you talk to me while I'm working. I'll nod my head. I'll say, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Yeah. I work from home, so I'm always there on my computer, and she'll tell me something important. I won't remember it 30 minutes later. <laughs> uh, man, she'll ask me to take care of something. You know, Remember to sweep the kitchen on your way up to bed. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I intend to do it. I'm not going to remember. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I don't know. And... She's so gracious with me. She says, I'm just a guy. That's <laughs> just what guys do. We know men. I mean, you know this. You're going to forget. <laughs> you mean it. You mean well. You're just going to forget. And, well, my wife, uh, she pities me. I don't know. Pray for me. I, I want to be better. <laughs> I really do. Uh, but I mean it. But I'm not going to remember. Um, ah, well, she shows me so much grace. I'm, uh, I'm not the best husband. I mean, she, she does so much for me, and she's so good to me. Uh, she doesn't fly off the handle every time I let her down. She pities me in that sense. Not in like a weird way. I don't know. But uh, man, uh, she knows I'm just a dude. <laughs> and I'm trying to become a man. Uh, so man, God, God pities us. He knows. We're weak. And if you're weak and you're stumbling, God has a path for you and he's willing to forgive. Remember that. That's where your repentance starts. Not because you're just afraid and you want to escape the consequences. But man, because you know God loves you. And his arms are open. 
Verse 40, uh, it says, How oft did they provoke him in the, wil- in, in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. Maybe it's about time that we just go back and think about the day he delivered you from the enemy. I mean, do you remember the day you got saved? Do you remember what it was like when you were just convicted of your sin and broken before the Lord over your disobedience? Do you remember what it was like just coming to the end of yourself and not knowing if there's any life beyond this if God doesn't save me? Do you remember the weight of sin lifting off of your shoulders as it's carried onto Christ who bore our sins to the cross of Calvary? Do you remember that incredible peace that just washed over you when the Holy Ghost came and filled your heart and life and sealed you unto the day of redemption and gave you perfect peace and assurance. I mean, do you remember that feeling of newness of life? I mean, I got saved down at St. Paul's in the youth ministry, and uh, I was skipping down the street. <laughs> color, color just came into my world. And, um, man, would you think about that and just remember that day? The next, like, 51, there's a ton of verses. We don't have time. I'm, so, I'm already over time. But just look at their testimony. Yeah, look at their testimony. Look at how Asaph just goes back and tells them, do you remember what God did in Egypt? And do you remember what God did at the cross? We should, we should remember that. Remember how God has been good and merciful to us. That's how we actually go back to God, is we think about how good and merciful he is. Think about your salvation and really, really think about that. Number two is we need to reckon that sin is deadly, destructive, and displeasing to God. Deadly, destructive, displeasing to God. In the verses that follow, um, Asaph talks about the consequences of rebellion that happens to the nation of Israel and Canaan in his day. If you look at verse 55, you know, they tempted, provoked the Most High God, kept not his testimonies, turned back, dealt unfaithfully. Same story. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. They provoked him to anger with their high places, moved him to jealousy. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, and the feet which he placed among them, delivered his strength, the ark of the covenant, into captivity, and his glory unto the sword, and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given to marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. That's what sin does to you. It's deadly. It's destructive, and it's displeasing to God. I mean, just think about what happened to Christ on the cross. Sin on his son caused God the Father to forsake his very own son. Just like God's glory departed from the tabernacle in Shiloh, man, Christ turned to the Father while he was on the cross and said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Sin causes a separation from God. And then think about how Just like the ark was turned over to God's enemies, the Philistines, man, um, Christ was turned over to God's enemies for us. He was delivered into the hands of the Gentiles to be crucified. And sin caused a great slaughter in that day. I mean, the priests, the men, the young women all died in slaughter. Christ died for us on the cross. All those consequences, the fruit of sin, well, Christ bore that in our place. And how could we, who have been saved by the finished work of Christ, go back to the sin that did such horrible things to our Savior? Step three is really simple. 
It's just repenting. <laughs> Turn back. Find somebody. Pray with them. It's your decision to make. We don't have time to go over these last verses, but this last step is to remain accountable to the leaders God has given you. He goes back and he praises God. You remember, he appreciates the present. He goes back and he says, you know, all those things, the glory departing from Shiloh, the ark being carried away, and Israel being defeated by their enemies. Well, he gave them David, who's a great type of Christ, who defeated their enemies, brought the ark back, and restored them in fellowship with God. That's what Christ did. But in a devotional sense, God's given us leaders who, just like David in verse 72, have integrity of heart. I mean, they're good people. They can give you God's word with a clear conscience. And David guided them by skillfulness of hands. I mean, that's why we have LFBIs. We're trying to produce Davids, men with good hearts who can show you how to repent and how to get right with the Lord and apply it to your life. And uh, I guess that's the, that's the, that's it. That's how we turn back to God's law. Uh, thank you. I don't know. I, I was trying to check the time. What, what are we doing now? Oh, okay. Praise the Lord. All right. Um, well, uh, can I just talk to you before you do the head bowing thing? I, I think it's kind of weird. I'm going to do it anyway, but <laughs> it's just socially awkward. I didn't grow up in church, so the whole head bowing thing, it's like, close your eyes. Let me talk to you. <laughs> no, uh, man, uh, let me just tell you, uh, man, I'm nothing. I came to this church 16 years old without a clue in the world. Uh, without salvation, without knowing church, without knowing the Bible. And, um, man, without getting saved by you guys praying for me, um, without getting discipled by Alex, without having this church, um, man, I don't, I don't have this life. I'm off somewhere doing nothing, just playing video games, wasting my life. Lust and sin, all it's going to do, and all it did to me was sin, death, vanity, and trouble. And it'll do that in your life and in our lives if we don't return to God's law and get right with the Lord. Um, so can I just plead with you? Um, if, you if anything about you know, God's word today just said something to you, please talk to your Bible study leader, your discipler, or, man, the leaders in this fellowship, somebody with integrity of heart and skillfulness of hands to help you get back on the right path. The Lord's so merciful and compassionate. And, uh, man, he, he just wants us to... Uh, man, come back to him. And so let me pray for you. Uh, Father, uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are compassionate, willing to forgive and turn away your anger. And you did that at the cross. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm, I'm just praying that um, you would rescue them from a life of lust, sin, death, and vanity uh, and bring them to a life that glorifies you and, and comes to your word and, and, man, just is full of hope and obedience and courage. And God, would you help us to be the kind of fellowship in church that just propagates that kind of a culture of worship and obedience to the next generation? Um, and God, if there's anyone in here that's struggling, um, God, I just know that the most dangerous place in my life has been not telling anyone about it, not repenting, not getting accountable. Um, so I just pray that you would do a, a work uh, in their hearts through the Holy Spirit uh, and, and bring them to repentance. Um, God, we love you. Uh, we thank you so much. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.